We're going to be this morning, if you'll turn there, we're going to actually go back to the base of Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 32. So let's all turn there. I was intending to press on in Romans 9, but the Lord made it providentially evident that I need a little bit more time to wrestle with that particular passage. So we're going to be in different territory this morning, but let's all stand in Exodus 32 and I'll read the passage. And we'll read the first six verses. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron, said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, and your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Let's pray. Father, even in our short-sighted condition on this earth, we recognize this is an awful thing we've just read. Father, pray you'd help us to learn from the good and the negative in this particular text. Would we know these things were written for our admonition? There's many things in this period in history you left out. You selected certain ones to teach us what our God is like. Father, I pray you'd give us ears to hear this morning. I pray you'd purify our view of yourself. Thank you for your astounding patience with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I were to begin by posing the question this morning, who is the God of Sinai? It might seem like a fairly obvious question, and you might wonder uh, what the catch is. But really, if you were paying careful attention in that text, there actually there is a collision between two gods that is happening in this portion of Scripture. There's the true and living God, the God of the capital G. There's the false God of the lowercase g. There's the God who dwells on the summit. There's the God who lurks down around the base. There's the God of Israel versus the God of this world. 
There's the God of unflinching truth and burning holiness versus the God of moral compromise, sinful tolerance, and religious pretense. The living God. Immortal. Invisible. Unchangeable. Indescribable. Uncreated. Versus a God of gold. Created in the depraved minds of fallen humanity and fashioned with wicked hands. What I'm going to speak on briefly this morning is the topic, Beware of the Golden Calf. I wish that I could tell you that this is merely a historical event. That uh, really nobody today is in danger of making this sort of error. That is simply not the case. You see, really the golden calf incident more that is a historical event, but uh, more than that, it's a religious philosophy that unfortunately did not die in the wilderness along with the rebels that perished. It's a philosophy that attempts to wed together the rudiments of a godless world with the worship of the true God. It's a hybridized religion. It's calculated to please a God-hating world on one hand and be true to God at the same time. To straddle a fence that cannot be straddled. To live in two opposing spheres. Have you ever thought that when the holy mixes with the profane, the profane loses nothing, but the holy loses everything? It's always been true in the field of so-called religion. The golden calf is marched down right through the halls of history. And it appeared time and time again in Israel's history, at least the philosophy behind it. In the last 50 years, I would say it swarmed upon the churches, at least of the English-speaking world, like locusts from the bottomless pit. It's interesting that in this passage in Exodus 32, if you back up to when they came out of Egypt, there was a mixed multitude that came along. Remember them? There was this tag-along that followed them out of Egypt for various reasons. I imagine there were some of them were simply afraid of, of the judgments and they wanted to escape. Their economy was decimated, their houses were wrecked, their crops were destroyed, their animals were dead. There were others that wanted to seek a, a, an adventure to seek or they wanted to see more miracles. There were those that maybe just merely wanted a change of venues. Perhaps among some of them, there, were, there was a genuine desire to know something of the God of Israel. What alarms me is there's a strange mixed multitude tagging along the coattails of genuine Christianity today in this country. There's a mixed multitude that seems strangely cozied up, false teachers, desirous of feelings and experiences. But when it comes right down to it, when God is described in all of His majestic glory, when His precepts are given, it's not really God that they want. They might want the religion, but they don't want the true and living God. I think we need to have the mindset of Daniel and Babylon. Because might I say our country is increasingly becoming just like Babylon in spiritual character. Or we have to have the fortitude increasingly as time goes on to touch not the unclean thing. 
to determine we're not going to defile our conscience, even though we've got all kinds of reasons around us to defend it, even within the ranks of so-called Christendom. The devil's always been more successful at attempts to infiltrate the church rather than annihilate it. He demonstrated that with Israel. The cradle of Israel's civilization was in Egypt. Their population exploded. What happened? The devil comes along through the pharaohs to wipe them out. Having failed at that, Pharaoh's armies comes to wipe them out again. Having failed at that, what comes along? But there were false prophets among the people. Peter writes, even as though there shall be false prophets among you. The same was true in the New Testament church. The devil goes after the apostles. He finds the weak link in Judas. He tries persecution from the outside when that doesn't work. His general defense or his general mechanism has been to infiltrate, to come in with subtle philosophies from the inside, to plant tares among the wheat. Now, how does the philosophy of the golden calf creep in? I mean, how does the whole thing begin? Notice in verse 1, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount. You see, this turning aside into the philosophy of the golden calf, it begins with a sinful sort of impatience. Moses didn't come back when they thought. Forty days had gone by. Israel had a God-ordained leader who had departed up the glory cloud to meet with God. And when he left, he didn't give a time frame. By the way, Moses is a tremendous study in spiritual leadership. Moses was not a New Testament pastor. Many make that error. It's not the same. But there are several applications that can be made. One of the things that makes Moses such a great study in leadership is he knew when to move. What else did he know how to do? Wait. You divide Moses' life into 40 years. The first 40 is spent in Egypt wondering what God was going to do. He commits murder. He tries to present himself as their uh, deliverer. They reject him. He goes to the wilderness. Another 40 years goes by. He's tending sheep on the backside. It's after those 40 and 40 that God takes him and says, Now go back and deliver my people. After 80 years of preparation, Moses was very well schooled in patience. And do you know why? Because he had a proper perception of God. One of those proper perceptions is that God is not in a hurry. God is zealous to be sure. But God is not biting nails and tapping feet and shoving on doors. He is at perfect rest and complete in His purposes and with Himself. We've got to remember that. When you feel yourself anxious and in a rush and in a hurry, stop and be still and know that He is God. He's not in a rush. Maybe I've shared this story before. I heard it in college and it still makes me laugh. This missionary was down and he was in Africa. And uh, he wanted God's power in his ministry. Not much was happening. These two African guys come and grab him. They said, white man, we're going to go pray. And so they take him off into the woods at night and they're climbing this mountain. He said all he could see was the whites of their eyes and their teeth. 
And he keeps asking him, where are we going? How long are we going to be there? And one of the guys turns to him and he says, white man, you got a problem. Because you're in a hurry and God's not. Many times that's true of all of us, isn't it? It's not that God's not zealous. But He's not in a rush. So these people, rather than rejoicing, they have a careful man of God at the helm who feared to step ahead or lag behind. They grew impatient. They were restless. They were discontent. They're frustrated with Moses. They're frustrated waiting for the promised land. They're sick of God Himself taking so long. And although the man is coming daily, the glory cloud can still be seen. It wasn't enough. They wanted action. They wanted feeling. They wanted something to happen. Come what may. They wanted change. I have to wonder how many godly people in various situations have departed for a time or another to serve the Lord and come back and run into the same situation. I've been heartbroken in recent years to hear of missionaries who come back from the field. They go to visit their, their sending churches. And they find the cross taken down and effectively a golden calf set up. One of the dearest saints I know, who I met up in Alaska, serving in another country through tremendous trials. He comes back to visit one of his sending churches and he says they start their worship service and his children are clutching their ears and screaming in terror. Same thing he found. You see, the people had gotten impatient. They had to have, they had to have results. They had to fill those seats. They had to, they had to have something happen. And God's ways are too slow. We've got to shake things up a little bit. We've got to be culturally relevant. Well, this discontentment with the state of things, I mean, I wonder, you stop and think, you ask yourself the question, is discontentment a friend or an enemy? It really depends what you mean. Uh, was not Moses discontent? In Exodus 33, the next chapter, remember the bold request he makes of God? Show me thy glory. You see, he wasn't satisfied with his nearness to the Lord. David expressed something similar in Psalm 42. As the heart or the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after Thee, O God. You see, that kind of discontentment, that kind of not being complacent in, in your nearness to the Lord, your fervency in prayer, your desire to be near Him, to cling to the foot of His mountain, that's a friend. That's a good type of discontentment that leads you to more intimacy with the Lord. Confession of sin, purity of life. But if discontentment leads to criticism, compromising, lowering standards, looking for some other feeling or movement, or redefining what God has said, discontentment is a tremendous enemy. You know, misinterpretation of our Lord's delays have often proved tremendously disastrous in scriptural history. There's a lot of examples of that. Peter mentions there's going to be those in the last days. Where's the promise of His coming? You see, they interpret the fact that Jesus hasn't come back as meaning He's not going to. The Lord mentioned the wicked or the unjust steward. He said, my Lord delayeth His coming. And you see, it's just here that many go astray, and this is especially, I think, a danger to the young people. 
Life isn't fast-paced enough. God's ways are too stodgy, too restrictive. You've got to look for plan B. You know, it's interesting, the cross of historic Christianity was a rough and rugged and ugly thing. Stained with blood, probably from criminals past, but eventually stained with the blood of the Son of God Himself. And that wooden and ugly, rugged cross was carried up a hill of death to give life to multitudes. But have you noticed that ever since popular religions got a hold of the cross, they've washed off the blood, they've sanded off the rough spots, they've removed the nails, they've covered it with gold, and they've stuck it on a cart fashioned out of the wisdom of the age and paraded it around. And you know what's happened? It's lost its power. It's the old rugged cross. It's the message. Not the new smooth gold-dipped one of human reason. So their discontentment, their impatience, what does that lead to? It leads to uh, forgetfulness. Also in verse 1, what do they do? They come to Aaron and they say, Up, make us gods. You see a little bit of a condescending and disrespectful tone there. Hey, quit sitting there making pious faces. Get up and do something. Look, it's been well over a month since your brother disappeared up into yonder mountain. All right, we need to get the show moving here. You see these people? They're bored. Why do I say it's forgetfulness? Remember, not long before this, this same crowd of people had observed God's devastating judgment on Egypt, dealing with every single one of their false gods, including one that looked like a cow. In fact, Egypt was still smoldering in ruins, essentially, while this was going on. They had stood just before this at the foot of Sinai with their knees knocking together in tremendous white-knuckle terror as the law of God is thundered down out of the thick cloud. God descends in fire and a massive earthquake and a deafening trumpet blast from heaven. That's what had just happened. One of the commands He gave, uh, this is one that modern religion needs to remember. We're not constrained by the law, but this principle runs throughout. Exodus 21-23, You shall not make with Me gods of silver. What's He saying? You ever heard somebody say, Oh, I don't worship that statue over there. It helps Me. Worship God. God says it's an abomination. There's a reason why He didn't prescribe statues of so-called saints to be all over our assembly. Because He knew the idolatrous nature of the human heart. He told them in Exodus 22, He that sacrificeth unto any god save the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. He had just said this. Exodus 24, remember their answer? All that the Lord has said, we will do. They'd forgotten God's goodness to them. They'd forgotten His provisions. They'd forgotten Moses' tender care and long-suffering and His command. Moses' command was not very complicated. Here's what he said. Stay here until I come. Now, is that hard to understand? But here's what happens with plain statements like that in the fallen human mind. The more time goes by, 
the more room comes in for reinterpretation and shedding new light on something that's as plain as day. Stay here till I come, he says. And they won't even give Moses the benefit of the doubt. I think it's interesting. He says, as for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. No mourning? No, hey boys, let's gather a rescue party. Maybe some evil beast tore him up. I don't know, let's go find his remains and do something about it. They're just going to move on. And it shows their low estimate of him. Have you ever studied the word remember in Scripture? Quite a thing to look into. The Lord tells us that frequently. I think it's a beautiful thing in the life of Peter. You remember, Peter denies the Lord, right? Three times. And the Lord comes to him. Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What did he say? Feed my sheep. And what were some of Peter's closing words in his epistle? Yeah, if I could meet, he says, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, to stir you up by way of remembrance. Peter remembered that command, I'm going to feed the sheep until I die. We do communion service, which we will have coming up here not too long from now. Remember. This do in remembrance of me, because when we forget... His works or His person. We're in tremendous danger of going astray. Do all of us understand that ministers are not God-makers? Sometimes I'm shocked at how many people don't understand that. Every time somebody tries to get somebody in the name of the Lord to depart from the written Word of God, and to bless it. What they're essentially saying is get up and make us gods. That's what they're saying. You remember one of the end times prophecies. We've talked about it frequently. What's going to happen in the last days? People are going to heat to themselves teachers having itching ears. What does that mean? They're going to search the streets high and low saying up, make us gods. We don't like the historic definition of the God of the Bible. We don't like the restrictive Jesus that's in the New Testament. We want a new one. Now we're giving you opportunity to get up and make one for us. I think it's interesting, at least these people are honest enough to call it what it is. Make us gods. At least in that respect, they're being more noble than some people today who try to redefine it as something else. They say, get up and make us a God. Give us what we desire. And so apparently this movement started with some of these leaders among the congregation. It started small, it gained momentum, and then it spreads like a vicious disease. And just like every false movement does, it does find its ministers eventually. Either that or it starts with them. I have to ask the question though, why would they come to Aaron? In fact, the Jewish rabbinical tradition says he came to Aaron and Hur. Now, it doesn't mention Hur in this passage, but if you go back to Exodus 24, it does mention that Aaron and Hur were left as leaders when Moses left. And Moses' charge there wasn't very complicated. You elders are in charge. If you have an issue, talk to Aaron and Hur. They'll sort it out. But why would they come to Aaron... 
with this request, knowing what God had just said. We see the devil knows it's far more effective to get an influential man to compromise than to build one from scratch. That's why he does this saying all of the time. I've mentioned it before, but in the history of persecution, you see the influential ministers are the ones that they went after to get a recantation the most heavily. Because if they could get those men to turn coats, multitudes might follow. Fox's Book of Martyrs is actually a tremendously Protestant book. In fact, some of the martyrs in there actually had martyred other people. But yet it is a good book still. One of those I think of is Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury. He recants, rejects Christ. That night in his cell, he's so overwhelmed with grief. He knows he's denied his Lord. He's determined to make it right. So all the authorities get him together. Hey, Archbishop of Canterbury is going to recant publicly. Everybody come. And he stands up and totally denounces their abominable idolatries and preaches Christ to the multitude. Well, they couldn't bear with that. They heat up the fires to burn him alive. The guy actually walks over to the fire and he says, this hand signed the recantation. This hand must perish first. Perish, unworthy right hand. And he walked up there and he stuck his arm in that fire and then he stepped in himself went up in flames. Amazing story. But Satan's after the influential to try to get them to turn code. I mean, think of the effect here, right? This is Moses' spokesman, Moses' brother. And if he comes on board with the movement, what's the rationale? Well, it must be a good thing. If you flipped over the book of the golden calf, you would find Aaron, brother of Moses, his endorsement on the back. And all of a sudden, that leads credence to the movement. Does that ever happen today? Oh, brother, it happens today a lot. Well, now Aaron's got a serious dilemma on his hands, doesn't he? On one hand, he's got this passionate, angry mob numbering up in the millions. On the other hand, he still retained at least some fear of God. Well, what's a man to do? He tells us in verse 2, Aaron tells him, break off your earrings, bring them to me. The people did it. Verse 4, he received them with their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool. He makes a molten calf, which they take as their God. Here was Aaron's error, fundamentally. He reasons it was better to have all of the people involved in compromised religion rather than to have only some of the people involved in the truth. And it becomes for a time an instrument of Satan rather than God. Do we recognize that philosophy of pragmatism for what it is? This has been replayed over and over and over and over across the pages of history. Are we not aware God is not looking to build a majority? He is the majority. Jesus didn't say, I'm the way, the popularity, and the life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's the discontented, zealous ones who attempt to make the way of the cross palatable to a world that hates Christ, and they end up fighting against the truth. 
Anytime we make the decision to weaken the plain statements of God in order to bring people to God, it's an abomination to God without exception. I think it's interesting, Moses or Aaron's position has influenced the past good that he'd done, which was some. Didn't excuse his present error. In verse 21, Moses comes to him and he said, what do these people do to you that you caused them to sin? Verse 25, it says that Aaron had made them naked. You see, God's laying this at Aaron's feet. Here's another cardinal mistake you see today all the time. You point out an error somewhere, and the argument is, well, look at all the good they've done. That is never a scriptural line of thinking. It doesn't mean you can't commend the good. Past good never, ever excuses present error. The issue is truth and the glory of God, not respecting persons and human feeling and protecting reputation. It doesn't matter how influential somebody is. God is the issue, not man. It says He made them naked. Spiritually speaking, this again happens all the time today. More, you know, there's so many that could be talked about. I just take one of the most popular. Take someone like Rick Warren. What is Rick Warren's influence? America's pastor, he's called. If you go back to Obama's inauguration day, you can hear Rick Warren pray in the name of a false Muslim god. You can look up his Daniel project, find him yoked with three Hindu men who point men to the Dalai Lama for spiritual help. Do you realize that Rick Warren has said on record Christian fundamentalism is one of the greatest enemies of the 21st century? Do you understand his mindset is that what we believe and teach here he views as one of the greatest enemies of America in existence? And we could talk about that all day, but we won't. But notice... Notice the type of worship that evolves here. And this also is very instructive. What was the name of their God? You notice that? Look in. Okay, Aaron makes the calf. What does it say in verse 4? And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel. Right? They said gods. What does Aaron say? End of verse 5. Tomorrow is a feast to who? Capital L-O-R-D. They say gods. He says the Lord. You see, this way, the leadership can absolve his conscience of guilt. He can claim a great movement in the name of Jehovah while the multitude could satisfy their sensual appetites. Do you understand this morning? People could care less what name is used for God or church as long as they can keep their idol. People will use Jesus' name all day long to satisfy a sinful, a sinful life. But it's His character that they fundamentally hate. This great feast, I'm sure, was the talk of the town. And uh, notice their zeal. I mean, look at this. Uh, what do they do? Uh, they, they take gold, their most precious earthly possession. They rise up early. And now they're showing some self-discipline in the matter. 
Uh, they offer sacrifices. Well, that's highly symbolic. They offer a burnt offering, which eventually pictures Christ's entire devotion to the Father. They offer a peace offering, which pictures Christ by His death having made peace between God and man. Now, ironically, they don't offer a sin offering, uh, which happens to be the most needed. Now, I, I doubt they understood a lot of the typology, but, but think about what's taking place for a minute. You have the covenant people of God. They're camped out at the Mount of God. They've scheduled a feast in the name of God. They're giving their prized possessions to God. They're rising up early to worship God. They're offering sacrifices unto God, typifying that they're entirely yielded unto Him and that they have perfect peace with Him. What's the last sentence? And God hates it. Did you catch that list? Why? Here's what it boiled down to. They thought they were free to approach God however they wanted. Which included mixing paganism with real worship and the holy with the profane. Now what's the morality that develops? People rise up early, it says. They sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. The word play is a term of fornication. This was a big Old Testament woodstock. Compare verse 25. Aaron had made the people naked, it says. Now naked could refer to totally or partially. So as this praise and worship service moves on, the clothes begin to come off. And the idea of nakedness is revealing things that ought not be revealed, which God set precedence for way back in the garden when He put clothes on the naked bodies of Adam and Eve and said, now you keep those on in public. I think it's interesting, even with the priest, there were no stairs leading up to the altar, so you couldn't see up the priest's tunic, even dealing with the men. I mean, one principle, the idea of immodesty or nakedness is completely inconsistent with the worship of the true God, even for men. We do well to ask the question periodically, why do I dress the way I do? Some people make more of an issue out of that than they should, perhaps, but it's still a good question to ask. All right, now, what kind of music comes out of this? You see verse 17 19 to 19. Uh, Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. And he said, it's not the voice of them that shout for mastery. These are the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing, do I hear? So he sees these half-dressed people gyrating around, singing music that's described as the sound of war in the camp from a distance. Tell me, what scene does that bring to mind? Do you view Asaph and the boys from the book of Psalms when you read that? I doubt it. Can I be candid? The description of that isn't a far cry off from what passes as these so-called Christian rock concerts today. Scantily clad people worshiping a golden calf and it sounds like a war zone going on. I'd just say if you were 
toying with so-called Christian rock? You're playing with strange fire before the Lord? You're playing the mix of paganism and the holy? You're blending together things that God didn't mean to blend together. Ran across an interesting article, I think, that highlights this. And we'll be talking about this at length later, but okay, here's an article. It's from the Dallas Observer, written by a so-called Christian rock artist. and It's called Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and the Lord. You'll find a fine picture on the front of a man with a sacred heart picture and flashing the horns of Satan. And of course, here, let me just read you some of the quotes of this mindset. Here's what he says. Every Sunday morning across the Bible Belt, thousands of congregations sing along as bands trade hymns for rock and roll songs. But in recent years around North Texas, more and more Christian musicians, listen to this, they're finding musical salvation outside the walls of the church. My own band, Radiant, he says, experienced our musical salvation on a Wednesday evening in Deep Ellum in the spring of 02. It was our first time stepping into a traditional rock venue. We were opening band on a bill at the Galaxy Club. We had no idea what to expect. The only thing we knew for certain is that part of our payment was a case of beer. Growing up as a preacher's son, it was unmistakably the kind of place I was always taught to stay away from. Wouldn't want to listen to parents. The thought kept racing through my head, what are we doing here? Nearly a decade later, he says, a massive sea change has occurred. Dallas music venues and clubs are filled with musicians who learn their craft in a church auditorium. With a church in almost every corner, the Bible belts a harvest field of musicians who cut their teeth on church songs until they're ripe enough to try it out at the club. The Christian market's so focused as far as their topics, he says. We want to be broader and be able to explore more as a band. I don't think we wanted to have the constraints of being a Christian band. To be limited to certain songs. And it can be quite limiting. There's an old rumor out there that says the Christian record label executives count how many times you say Jesus in your songs. And if you don't say it enough, they send you back to the studio to drop a few more J-bombs. Isn't that cute? Being a Christian in the world of music just comes down to being myself and being honest with who I am. I'm not doing the music to convert people. I'm here for the music. I'm here to sing my song. As far as it applies to the local music scene, I don't see how it makes much of a difference. I simply choose to believe something that I go to in times of darkness. And he says these musicians are developing their skills in church. They're turning into local heroes, filling Dallas bars and clubs every weekend because ironically enough, that's the only place where creative Christian artists are accepted. Does anybody here see a flaw in the thinking there? I mean, just ad infinitum, those could be, those could be brought up in red. I mean, there are thousands of illustrations of that sort of thing for anybody who's willing to look. And if anybody honestly has questions on that issue, I'd be more than happy to sit down with you and bury you with information about what I'm talking about. I'm dead serious. I believe it's, I believe it's that serious. 
it's interesting, uh, so-called Christian rock began with introducing the elements into the music, and then it went into the mainstream artists who were going to cross over and keep the name Christianity. And then it went into those being so-called Christian bands singing both but dropping the name Christian, and now it's into anybody who says somebody in it is a Christian or was at one point in their life, now it's a Christian band. That's how it's progressed in the last few decades. Here's what that mixture, though, of the holy and profane does. It will numb your discernment. It will keep you in spiritual infancy. It will make you more susceptible to false teachers. It will make you dominated by emotion. It will create an appetite and love for the wicked music of the world. Most of you know who Jerry Lee Lewis is. He's in his 80s now. He's an old man on wife number seven. Notoriously evil life. By the time he was 25, he had been a bigamist or been married to two women at the same time, twice. One of which was his 13-year-old cousin. Two of his wife died by suspect circumstances, which it appeared like he's the one that did the killing, but he was never nailed to the wall. He once famously showed up at Elvis Presley's Graceland brandishing a pistol tanked up on liquor, daring the king to come out and prove who was the rightful king of rock and roll. Jerry Lewis's nickname is The Killer, the first and original bad boy in rock music. But what many people don't know is he began his career at Southwest Bible Institute in Texas. He began a toy with the wrong music. He was expelled for playing it. Him and another student named Green were kicked out of the school. But you know, years later, that same young man who is now an old man named Green came to Lewis and he said, are you still playing the devil's music? Do you know what he said? He said, yes, I am. But he said, let me tell you what's interesting. The same music I was expelled for, all these churches are playing. Only they don't know it's the devil's music. And I do. Unbelievable statement. And at every gathering of compromise, that's why you hear it in the background, by the way. All right, what's the end product of this philosophy? What does it produce? I mean, this is a great revival among the people, right? This is culturally relevant. Everybody's involved. This is a God that everybody can enjoy, fashioned with human hands. So what's the supernatural change it produces? Chronologically, not much later. You can go to Leviticus 10. They're spiritual leaders. Nadab and Abihu, incinerated by fire. Why? Because they thought they could approach God on their terms. How about their political leaders? Number 16, here comes Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and 250 princes, chosen men of renown in the congregation. Here's their political groupies. They decide they're going to be the ones that pick who's in leadership. They're tired of this stodgy old Moses. The Lord incinerates those three in their families and opens up the earth and swallows the rest of them alive. And then at Kadesh Barnea, Numbers 14, same philosophy, mind you. They're told to go in and take the land. We don't want to take the land. They don't go. God says don't go, now they want to go. 603,548 of them die in the wilderness. That type of spiritual climate, listen, is always the end product of the philosophy of the golden calf. Because at its very roots, 
is bringing in a godless philosophy opposed to truth, trying to do the work of the living God. At the very beginning, it never produces a strict obedience to a sovereign Lord. But it begins with sinful questions. It begins with discontentment. It begins with a better idea. A vast multitude stirred into emotional froth, zealous for the truth, seemingly professing entire allegiance to the God of heaven with no real holiness produced in the life, no discernment, no hatred of sin, no living like strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you know why? Because this world is still their home. You know, this whole nonsense of the so-called emerging church, I think they should make t-shirts for every church that goes that way. You know what their logo should be? It should be a golden calf climbing the stairs of the Tower of Babel. And they had to call it what it is. What's God's reaction? Verse 7 and 8. The Lord said to Moses, keep in mind, they're still up on the mountain. The Lord says, Moses, get back down the mountain. Moses, he said, here's the deal. The brilliant people you left behind... They've come up with a fantastic way that I didn't even think of to include all the multitudes in this mixed worship that both heathens and the holy would love. Now, I want you to get back down that mountain, Moses, and I want you to take careful notes because we're going to produce a church growth book. He says, Moses, get down the mount for the people which you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. You notice what he didn't say? Number one, God wasn't very flattered at their lip service to Him. Number two, He does not commend it as some brilliant departure from His principles. He calls it idolatry and says, Now you get down there and deal with it. Well, how are we to respond to this sort of thing? Well, first of all, let me say this sort of philosophy. There are true believers mixed up in this sort of thing. There are. And they don't need an axe dropped on their head most of the time. I find it interesting. Moses' response up on the mount, what is it? Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? And Moses steps in and intercedes for them on the basis of the glory of God. Moses' heart is shattered. He doesn't strut down the mountain like a peacock, spiritually superior, to give them a lecture. Psalm 106 is an amazing passage. It's recounting the history of the Jews. And it records there God was going to wipe them out had not Moses, his chosen, stood in the breach. With all the conflicting viewpoints and struggles on how that would have worked out sovereignly, I don't know. But one of the facets of that, God used Moses to stand in that place and spare them from destruction because of his right heart attitude. It's not the heart of God to condemn He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Secondly, Moses gives him an invitation to repentance. Remember, what's the penalty of the law here? What is it? It starts with a D. Death. But even here, there's a delay. And Moses essentially says, who is on the Lord's side? 
I wish somebody would go into one of these big ecumenical conventions and yell something like that. I really do. They'd probably be trampled to death. I don't know. But he says, who's on the Lord's side? He says, you see that calf over there? That philosophy? That's not the Lord's side. Now who's going to come to where God is? Let Him come unto me. It's interesting. That's where Levi comes to Moses. And Levi eventually becomes the priestly tribe, which if you compare careful records in the Old Testament, God's original intention was that all of the Jews were to be priests before him. Because at least here, the Levites were spiritually astute enough to step over that line drawn in the sand and say, I'm on the Lord's side. God picked them to be the priestly tribe for generations to follow. And what does he command? He commands a strict separation from the philosophy and the error. In other words, there's a line in the middle that no obedient person dare cross. Let him come unto me, he says. I think it's interesting. Well, what does Moses do with the idol? Verse 20, he made the calf, which they took the calf they made, he burned it in the fire, he ground it to powder, strawed it in the water, and he made him drink it. You want to drink iniquity down like water? Have a cup. By the way, what should we do with idols in our own life? Tangible, physical idols? I remember years ago when the Lord had convicted me about my absolutely wretched music I was listening to. And I needed to go. And of course the thought comes in, what are you going to do with that? I could recap some of that value. No need to waste it all. And I read about the Ephesians in Acts 19. They take all their curious arts together which they could have sold for a lot of money. What did they do? They burned them. Do you know why they burned them? Why didn't Moses take the golden calf and put it in the museum of the Jews? It has value, Moses. Do you know why? Because if you leave an idol, it corrupts other people. You leave your wicked music on the earth, it corrupts other people. You leave your vile books on the earth, it corrupts other people. You leave any of those things around, what's going to happen? Do you want to stand before God and say, Lord, I saved $4.50 to destroy that person's spiritual view of who God is? I hope not. That's exactly why the Ephesians did what they did. Not only was the idol destroyed, but what a witness to the town. Can you imagine? I find it amazing things that people try to so-called harness. There's entire Bible studies based on things like Harry Potter. Let's study witchcraft and harness it for good. Let's throw that in the fireplace and call it what it is. We'll end with this thought. Who is really on the Lord's side? We need a generation of people to think like the Levites today. Yes, to have the heart of Moses to intercede. Yes, to be gracious and compassionate, but to be able rec to recognize philosophically where this type of thing comes from, this kind of unholy mixture. We need a generation of young people who are going to call evil and compromise what it is. And I hope I don't have to tell you, by the grace of God, I don't ever want to be a God-maker. I don't ever want the golden calf walking through those doors. 
My commission from the Lord is to keep it out. And as things press on, it's going to be difficult, and many will hate my guts. I understand that my goal is never to make enemies. But the days are coming in America where we've got to have more spiritual fortitude than churches have had here for a long time. Not to look for the tide of popularity, but to call the mixture of paganism and so-called holiness exactly what it is. Let's not bow before the golden calf. Let's be on the Lord's side. Let's pray. Lord, what do we really know? We're so feeble, we're like little toddlers in your sight. And I know so many of the little wranglings and disputes we can get involved in, you must look at with such grace, such pity, but such grief too. But yet there's things we have to stand for. Pray God you'd give us discernment in these trying times. Let us not turn aside into bitterness and caustic criticism and rudeness. And there's so many under the banner of fundamentalism have such a poor example of graciousness. But yet that doesn't take away your commands to stand for righteousness. Help us to be careful and patient and gracious, but to drop down your word like a hammer when it needs to happen. Thank you, Lord, you've always preserved a remnant. And Lord, we are nothing, but we recognize at least something of the age we're in. So many are capitulating to making gods, taking the blessed Son of the living God, dragging His holy name and reputation through the mud of human reason. I pray you take our view of Christ, our view of yourself, lift it higher and higher up into the heavens. Jesus' name, amen.